Welcome to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I am your host, Gil Manser. Today's conversation is with Christina Goulart, Susan E. Gunter, and Susanna Solomon, three of the talented writers featured in Journeys on the Road and Off the Map, the special 10th anniversary writers anthology collected, edited, and published by Redwood Writers. With over 150 members, Redwood Writers is the largest and arguably the most active of the 21 branches in the California Writers Club. The anthology began as a labor of love by editors Catherine Farrell, Karen Batchelor, and Linda C. McCabe when they found an on-demand publishing house and collected and edited the 2006 anthology entitled Vintage Voices, a Sonoma County Writers Club Harvest. This show will be a mini-retrospective of sorts, featuring short pieces from several different Redwood Writers anthologies. But we will begin with the new 10th anniversary edition, entitled Journeys on the Road and Off the Map. I'd like to begin the process of submitting by how you submitted something to the anthology. The obvious starting point is that it has to be some kind of journey, but why? Who wants to talk first? Introduce yourself and talk. Well, I'll go ahead. Perfect. I'm Christina Goulart, <laughs> and my piece is Stoplight, and it's a travel vignette, as I like to call it. And um, I had a very um, moving experience a year ago going to India, and I just feel like I need to write about it. And having a place to submit this piece um, is an opportunity to, to share my experience with other people. Why the anthology? Um, or did you do multiple submissions? No, I've only submitted to the anthology so far, uh, as far as this piece. Um, the Redwood Writers is an, is an excellent community. It's a very tight-knit community for me, and I, I like to be a part of it and like to participate in the anthologies. Susan? Yes, I'm Susan Gunter. I have a poem, a Mediterranean Triptych, um, and I had a wonderful editor for it, by the way, Michelle Wing. Uh. But I submit, and I get lots of rejection slips, like every other writer, some acceptances. But this title, uh, the theme of the book, Work for Me, of the Redwood Writers Anthology. And, and I think, like Christina, I love my association with the group. And to me, publishing a poem is just another way of talking with people. You know, you get feedback and emails, and, and I just appreciate the chance to have these conversations. Okay. Susanna? I'm Susanna Solomon, and I've been uh, wanting to see this piece in print for about 40 years. And... Um, <laughs> it's okay. a, It's an old story for me. That makes you 106, I think. That's about right. But, yeah. Um, the the Redwood Writers Anthology is a treat because they have a party, and uh, they have uh, <laughs> readers out in a garden in Roanoke Park on a beautiful summer day. We have books for sale. We have lots of food. We love to see audiences. There's such a joy on that day. Um, I've submitted uh, to the anthology before, and I've submitted to lots of other places, and I have uh, a very special place in my heart for Redwood Writers. They've been wonderful. Good. Very good. 
Okay, well, I've been involved with several of the Redwood Writers anthologies. A couple times I was a writer, and other years I was part of the selection committee. One of the recurring problems is there has to be a theme, and then what to name the end product. Frankly, some of the titles sound like they were created by a committee, which they were. For the first seven years, the phrase vintage voices was used, followed by something associated with Sonoma County. So we've got vintage voices, for instance, a toast to life, vintage voices, words poured out, all with, uh, you know, beautiful grapes and glasses of wine on the cover. Then in 2013, the titles changed, and there was an earthquake at the same time. Because, in fact, the blurb for this edition embraced this break with tradition by reading, The stories, poems, essays, and memoirs anthologized in Beyond Boundaries take their inspiration from the theme of emancipation. Whoa. So writers, you know, we can write words that that mean a lot. As my guests know, the invitation to to be on today's show was open to any writers in the anthology who could meet together at the KRCB studios at a given date and time. In a sense, this has created a random collection of writings, but the interesting thing is that even though the three pieces which you will hear today take place in different locales, continents, and even centuries, they are astoundingly interconnected. They are also very good writing. So I'm going to start with Susan Gunter's triptych poem called uh, Mediterranean Triptych, and I have her read the first stanza from that poem and then stop. Thank, Thank you so much, Gil. Mediterranean Triptych, 1. Feeling my way across space and into time, I see that space has changed into time, yet nothing moves for me. Or perhaps I should say, nothing moves me. Nothing penetrates my obsidian heart. It is glazed, encrusted, a damantine, I strike the chisel of my pen against it, and it only vibrates in hollow half-tones. No overtones, because inside, in the heart of my heart, something remains. Why do I have these dreams, if not because my heart beats on? It beats in my sleep, muscled, and pulsing while I dream of olive groves on Crete. So I'm going to read a little bit of the what you said at the end. Why do I have these dreams if not because my heart beats on? It beats in my sleep, muscled and pulsing, while I dream of olive groves on Crete, which takes us right into Susanna Solomon's homecoming, which begins with a dream. Every night at 4 a.m., I wake up dreaming about horseback riding in Vermont, where I last saw my mother when I was 14. I see the Vermont light in my eyes, smell the woods, the pasture, see the endless green hills, and hear the sounds of horses nickering. Then I wake up sweating, feeling awful. I'm a failure. I've been fired once again. There is something deeply, deeply wrong, and I don't know what it is. My dreams about Vermont are the only thing that makes me happy. I scrape together some coin and book a trip. It's been 40 years. I'm haunted by the feeling that I left something there, something I need, some part of me 
that I lost when my father came and told me my mother had died. The closer I get to leaving, the stronger I feel. It's time. The road to camp is wider than I remembered, and as I wind up and up, I feel there is something deep within me that is slowly awakening. I'm afraid of that, too. On the last turn of the road, I come out onto a clearing and see the low red building, the barn, and the road etched in my memory and hold back tears. I park and pass the paddock where I used to ride. That white rail fence is right there where I dreamt it was, near the front door to a ranch house smaller than I remember. To the left is the bunkhouse. The front door, a Dutch door, is painted dull red like the rest of the house, and below it stone steps peer out from a rest a nest of grass and dirt. I tremble all over. I step up, and the present world disappears. 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 Okay. So we'll go back to our poem. Right. Second stanza. <laughs> Two. This poem may go nowhere, but if it does, it should move, metaphorically at least, across the page, across the ocean, across that island by taxi, from Heraklion to Hersonisus, where the old black women pick grape leaves in vacant lots, and the sun shines every day where cafes crowd the edges of the sea, cafes with awnings, deep wicker chairs, and parasoled drinks that sound better than they taste. They all taste alike. I sit and write, sit and watch the horizon where the violet mountains come down to form right angles with the azure sea. My mind laps the shore in time to the waves. Okay, so we have, this poem may go nowhere, but metaphorically at least, across the page, across the ocean, and even across that island by taxi. And we have another taxi on another continent, which we're going to hear from Christina Goulart in her stoplight. Thank you. We drive to the airport at midnight, with the taxicab windows rolled down. It's over 90 degrees and so humid we can feel ourselves moving through the moist smog. It rests on us like a blanket we can't remove. The New Delhi streets are still bustling with traffic, but now that it's nighttime, the sidewalks that had been teeming with walking crowds are concrete beds for the homeless. Some have blankets to lie on, others lie directly on the concrete. A few get bus stop benches. There are too many people asleep on the streets to count, but I estimate that in the half-hour drive to the airport, I see 900. That would be one street person every two seconds of the drive. I revel in what now feels like a luxury from home, a taxi where each of us has a seat belt, where the headrests are in place, and where sitting askew to avoid a broken seat spring is unnecessary. Still, I don't yet allow myself to feel glad to be going home. We may be stopped by police and kept so long we miss the flight. We may get into a head-on collision. Dysentery may suddenly strike us. I am not paranoid or a hypochondriac. I have merely adjusted to being in India. I'm in an altered state. I'll call it radical acceptance. 
and I've never been close to it before. I am calm and accepting of experiences and sights that frightened or even horrified me a mere two and a half weeks ago. It's India, I've come to say with a shrug. I'm in the mode of dealing with what is o- with only what is in front of me and accepting it as it is. It's been my survival mechanism for the difficulties, and it's been my method for absorbing every sight, sound, and smell on this adventure. It feels like serenity. Maybe it is. I register the smells of diesel and sewage, but don't react. I notice there are four men crammed precariously into an auto rickshaw in the next lane, but I don't gasp out of concern. My typically overactive startle reflex surprisingly dulled. As our taxi driver slows to a stop at a red light, I gaze at the henna pattern that was drawn on my arm that morning by a local woman. She had worn a vibrant sari in orange, green, and gold. The design she drew on me freehand is a graceful cascade of swirls, leaves, and dots down my forearm, the back of my hand, and one finger. It's beautiful. Suddenly, an unkempt little girl about nine years old appears at my elbow. She speaks to me in what is probably Hindi and reaches to me through the car window. Her little hand is open in the universal gesture of begging. My radical acceptance is shattered. My detached calm disintegrates. Never mind that this little girl is out past midnight. She is standing in between two lanes of heavy traffic. Get out of the traffic, get out of the traffic. I repeat the words loudly and frantically as I gently push her hand away. She repeats her pleas back at me, not retracting her arm. I wave her on, go, go. My tour mates in the cab yell at me, give her a few rupees. I yell back, I don't have any rupees left. Now we are yelling over each other. Who has rupees? I do, but my bag is in the back. Food! Give her food. I don't have food. Who has food? Please, please go, my tour mate Darla implores quietly from the front seat. Get out of the street. This little girl may not understand English, but our gestures are clear. Her little hands are now hooked over the open window ledge next to me. I tap her fingertips. Let go, baby. Let go. She then releases one hand from the car door and lifts her T-shirt to show me her thin stomach. She points at it and says what I assume to mean, I'm hungry. Jesus! I'm yelling again. The light is going to turn green. She's going to get hit. Our driver looks on with only mild curiosity. He doesn't say a word to her or to us. We, the tourists, are now tearing through our shoulder bags looking for something to give her. I find my very last bit of American snack food. I am embarrassed that my first thought is that I may need the snack later for the long plane ride. I kick that thought away and show her the half-empty bag. Would you like this? She takes the bag with one hand, keeping the other firmly latched on the car, while she intently examines the photo on the bag. It's a cluster of pineapple, banana, and apricot. She nods in acceptance but doesn't let go. Holding the bag of dried fruit against her chest, she looks into my eyes, gestures at my carry-on, and asks, hopefully, Chocolate? No, baby, I tell her and show her empty palms. No chocolate. The light turns green. Like a traffic sprite, she nimbly darts between cars and makes it to the curb in one piece to wait for the next red light.
Mm-hmm. So the third section of Mediterranean triptych. Three. Here, peacocks, startled, jump straight up into black cypress trees. Where, we cry, is the labyrinth, the one with the minotaur? We all cry, even as the peacocks cry, eerie and thin, as we wander into one dead end and cul-de-sac after another. Here is the palace of the Minuan king. There are dolphin frescoes predating the pharaohs. Here are more white stone steps leading to blank walls. Where are we? Where are we? Warplanes fly overhead against the Turks while we wander from one level to another. We have walked it, felt it, sensed it. This is the labyrinth. This is all the labyrinth. The palace at Nosos is the labyrinth. That is all. Our minds work just so. How long must we wander inside them, meeting dead ends and blank walls, crying like turquoise and green peacocks, before we know that we ourselves are Nosos? Okay, and that leads us back to Susanna Solomon, as you remember, she had been waking up and dreaming of Vermont, and she put her coins together and flew back and uh, went and visited a, a horse riding camp and was had stepped upon the first step into the bunkhouse, and what happens? Let's pick it up there. Feeling the stone step under my keds, I run into the kitchen with a few other girls eager for breakfast. I'm late. Every morning I have to go round up my horse from the field across the road, and Topper loves to wander off towards the trees. Even though I doubt it every morning, he always comes to me, resting his soft nose in my hand as I place the halter around his round, smooth head and lead him back to the barn. I eat quickly and rush back to the barn to ready Topper for our morning ride. His skin twitches as I run the curry comb along his flanks. I clean Topper's hooves with a pick, and he tries to lean on me as I pick up one leg after another. With trepidation, I slide my fingers over his big teeth and ease the bit into his mouth. I soon slip the bridle up and over his head. The saddle is heavy as I lift it and place it on his back. Then, bending down under his belly, I reach for the belly strap and pull hard, feeling the leather squeak under my hands. He shifts his hooves, eager for a ride. I lead him out of the barn and mount up. He takes my light weight without complaint and we are off, his hooves knocking on the dirt road that leads from camp to the pastures and paddocks beyond. Ellen, the head counselor, leads us through our paces, walk, trot, canter, sit up straight, turn around, heels back and down, and Topper just flies underneath me, his flanks solid and wide, and he is doing exactly what I want. Proud and dreaming of placing in an upcoming horse show, Ellen calls my name out. Straight away, I think I'm doing something wrong, and I lead Topper over to her, disappointed. Your father's here, she says, and takes Topper's bridle. Puzzled, I step down. He is wearing a suit and bow tie, his regular attire. 
Come take a walk with me, he says, his voice strained. Did something happen to my brothers? They were always climbing, doing crazy things like going to the tops of bridges and playing daredevil games. My father is silent for the longest time, and we walk down the dirt road between the farmhouse and the paddocks. Dust flies up from my boots. Your mother died, he says, his voice quiet. What did you say? I ask. She committed suicide night before last. I came here as soon as I could. Your brothers are home waiting for me. I flew up this morning, first flight I could get to White River Junction. I stay silent. She wasn't with me in the middle of the night. I woke up and her side of the bed was empty. He pulls out his handkerchief and blows his nose. Birds call from the trees. I see girls across the way riding, and I wish I was with them. I went downstairs. The kitchen light was on. I heard the engine running in the barn, so I went out there, trying to figure out if someone was stealing my car. I, she was there, in the Ford, the engine running, the windows rolled up, the vacuum pipe from the pool inserted from the exhaust pipe through the window. I tried to imagine what he saw, trying not to forget any detail. I opened the door. I was too late. I ran inside, called the police. Mom was strong and capable and knew everything. Did it hurt, I ask. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas, and it just puts you to sleep. I could see her through the glass, he says. I'm sorry, he continues, his arms dropping. I feel the crunch of sand underneath my boots. He keeps on walking. I squeeze my eyes shut to make him go away. My father's wingtips grow dusty as we walk. The counselor said that you have a dressage lesson soon. I don't want you to miss it. I won't look at him. I want to be home with Mom, sipping tea and eating crumpets. We'll go back now. You'll have your lesson. Then we'll drive back to White River Junction, take a plane to Boston, and go home for the weekend. Sunday, I'll bring you back. As he recites orders, I feel myself disappear. We walk back to the farm. Just before the paddock, he stops, places his hand on my shoulder. Don't tell your friends what really happened. Tell them. He digs his hand deep into his pocket and jiggles his change. Tell them she had a heart attack. He pauses. Now, get back up on that horse. Walking inside the bunkhouse where racks of bunk beds stand, I almost run into Abigail, my best friend. She's running a hairbrush through her thick hair. You all right, she asks. You look kind of funny. My father says I have to go out riding. What's he doing here? I'm late. Ellen's going to be mad at me. Hold on. Her searching brown eyes are five inches from mine. My mother died, I said, my voice imitating my dad's. What do you mean your mom died? I have to get my stuff on, go riding. How did she die? I grab for air. Heart attack, I say. She couldn't have, she says gently. Katie, that doesn't sound right. Tell me. It's all right to tell me. But it wasn't all right. Your father asked you to say that, didn't he? She says softly. I fumble with the buttons of my rat catcher shirt. She committed suicide, I said. I say, resolving to tell the truth no matter how painful. Abigail tries to hug me. I pull back. I walk out of the bunkhouse into blinding light and close my eyes a sec, 
try to imagine something about my mother and bring her back. I grasp pieces of her, but they're gone as soon as I try to hold on. I lead Topper into the ring and mount up. I follow the other girls and listen to Ellen shout directions. I force myself to concentrate. Stop. I pull on the reins. Trot, she says. I force my heels down and back, my knees in, my back straight, my hands loose on the reins as I post and ride the rail clockwise away from my father. The reins feel soft and flimsy in my hands. I grasp harder. Easy on the reins, Kate, Ellen shouts. As I loosen my grasp, I think of my mother driving as we speed down Memorial Drive in the convertible and how I'd fall asleep next to her and how she'd laugh and gently wake me when we'd get home. I open my eyes and see my father, and my mother disappears. Canter, Ellen commands. I tap Topper, tighten my knees, and hold on as he breaks stride and speeds up. My father's face spins into nothingness. All I see is a white rail fence blurring as I race past. Stop. Turn around. Mom's face is next to mine, her hands brushing my hair, getting the tangles out. I come around and see my father again. I speed forward. Mom pulls the drapery cords in the morning, flooding the living room and me with light. Trot. Mom kisses me goodnight. Walk. Mom putting up her hair, wrapping it around and placing combs and pins in. Mom's bright red lipstick and bright smile. Mom wiping a smudge of lipstick from her teeth. Canter. Topper moves abruptly up and down, moving too fast. I start to feel sick. Mom always takes care of me when I wasn't feeling well. Stop, Ellen commands. Now, turn around. Canter. Spinning round the rail makes me feel sicker, and I start to sway. Ellen pulls on Topper's reins. Get down, she says. Someone leads Topper away. I wander away from the paddock as the other girls run off to the farmhouse. Katie, my father asks, running after me, get your things, we have to go. But I don't want to go anywhere. He pulls on my arm as I follow him back to the bunkhouse. I sit up on my bed, listening to the sounds of nothing. Come on, Katie, my father says. We'll miss the plane. Hurry up. Pack your things. My hands flutter over my toothbrush, pajamas, sweater, book, blanket, pillow, boots, socks, riding crop. Kate, my father says, come on. I follow him. Life is hard, he says, as we walk across the porch into his car. Now I look back into the parking lot and see a different car, a red rental car, ticking cool, and in the paddock a mare knickers in a rising wind. Leaves flutter overhead as she lifts her head and sniffs, and I follow her gaze. That's when I see her, leaning against one of the posts in front of the bunkhouse. A girl with skinny braids, thin blonde hair, a white ratcatcher shirt, with a bow tied perfectly under her chin. Short jodhpur boots, brown with straps at the ankle, jeans. She shifts as she sees me, her hazel eyes, her young face, showing me nothing but endless patience and a sad, soft smile. She is not as tall as I am, and is as flat as I remembered being at that age. I step over to the bunkhouse. What took you so long, she asks, as I fold her into my arms. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. 
where we are chatting with Christina Goulart, Susan E. Gunter, and Susanna Solomon, three of the talented writers featured in Journeys on the Road and Off the Map, the special 10th anniversary writers anthology collected, edited, and published by Redwood Writers. We have uncovered a surprising synchronicity in the three writings, and we will explore these themes in the next half hour. As you remember before the break, Susanna had just shared her story, Homecoming, which ends with this, these phrases. That's when I see her leaning against one of the posts in front of the bunkhouse, a girl with skinny braids, thin blonde hair, a white rat catcher sh shirt, and with a bow tied perfectly under her chin, short jodfer boots, brown with straps at the ankles, jeans. She shifts as she sees me, her hazel eyes, her young face, showing me nothing but endless patience and a sad, soft smile. She is not as tall as I am and is as flat as I remembered being at that age. I step over to the bunkhouse. What took you so long, she asks, as I fold her into my arms. So is this magical realism? I've been back there probably six times mm -hmm. in the last ten years. And um, it's an amazingly beautiful, beautiful place. And even now, I tremble all over thinking about it. It's a visceral reaction to the place. And um, I did go back there in my story, and um, I did come home with that piece that I left there. Mm -hmm. but, um, but is the girl the younger Kate? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember distinctly that day that I had to leave my childhood behind at 14. Mm. And um, I couldn't go back to the place for the longest time, and then it just pulled me back. And the same family owns it, and I was there just a few years ago, and Ellen was still there and... Uh, Still a, giving commands. Still giving commands. Well, it's not a camp anymore, but uh, she gave me a big hug when I pulled in. She remembered me very well, and uh, the place was luminous. Mm. Yeah. Well, as someone wrote and shared with us, this is the labyrinth. This is all the labyrinth. Our minds work just so how long we have wandered inside them, meeting dead ends and blank walls crying like turquoise and green peacocks. So that's the mind, isn't it? This labyrinth, this part we can jump over spots and remember so vividly from the past. When you were in the taxi cab in, and seeing your, your arm had been done up with henna and you remember you described the woman in the sari. And then when you're writing about being on Crete, you describe the woman in wearing black that you see, you know, gathering... Olives are cleaning up the olive groves. And um, you both brought in a, a sense of the different place with a really quite brief descriptions of the individuals you see. But this nine-year-old girl, who you remember so well, I assume she's about nine-year-old, mm -hmm. who has her arm clutched on you know, the side of the taxi cab. What do you think about her now? Oh, I think about her all the time, actually, you know, 
And it's so strange because she was in my life for, what, one minute? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, that little girl's life just haunts me. And um, it's sort of a relief to, to get it in print and, and to be able to share it. Yeah. And I just think, well, for me, it was a tough two and a half weeks. You know, <laughs> the squat toilets, the traffic, you know, all the things that I had never experienced before. But I got to come back. And, you know, and I've never had to beg for food. And so just, it was, you know, it's it's amazing to think of the variety of life experiences on this earth, you know. Right. When you were in Crete, mm -hmm. um, as you go around the island, you notice there's some very interesting things happening. For one thing, there's a lot of unfinished buildings. Do you know why that's so? Well, I guess I don't kill. I mean, oh, I, I used to know it's because if referring to the ruins, some of the ruins no, that I'm haven't been excavated. No, I'm talking about the new, the new construction. Well, no, I, I and don't the top know that. floors will have rebars, you know, steel oh, rebars okay. sticking Maybe, out. Yeah. The reason for that is if you finish the building, you have to pay the taxes. <laughs> oh, so I if you look that. at Greece's uh, and and unfortunately Crete became part of Greece yeah. in, in just a few <laughs> years ago. Um, if you look at the financial difficulties they have, there's all kinds yeah. of games. You know, they're basically, I think, they give seminars on how to avoid paying taxes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, one of the other things is there is so much history. You know, just in this, you look in the side of a hill as you drive by. Yeah, it's amazing. Just, just astounding. Yeah. Yeah. In India, did you have that same feeling of history, or is it all just now? Here we are. Um, I did have a bit of, of of a sense of history, but I it was just so intense that I was very much in the moment. But yet, even though we would be in modern taxi cabs, some of them not, you know, kept well, up very well. Well, obviously, one with but, a broken spring. Right? Absolutely, but um, but then we would be driving along, and there'd be, for example, a easily eighty foot tall Krishna statue in the middle of a field, and and then. You know, a few minutes later, we see people traveling down the edge of the highway on an elephant. So there was the historical and the modern together, sort of all mishmashed. And sometimes with cars, there were, in fact, cows, you know, crossing the street, too, in the middle of the city. So it was, you know, it was intense. And, yes, I felt the history as well as the current chaos at the same time. Right. You obviously, Susanna, have history when you go back to Vermont. That's mm -hmm. And uh, Vermont, is it slower to change than the West Coast, at least that section of the state? That hasn't changed too much. Um, it's it's still farms. Uh, I did get a chance to go inside the house and take photographs. And uh, it's a real farm kitchen with an ancient stove and shelves full of put-up vegetables and fruits and two or three beat-up chairs in front of an old wood stove and tons and tons of wood. And it was so dusty mm. that uh, you know, they just get by. That's, <laughs> that's what it is in yeah. central Vermont. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's not uh, dependent on, uh, or, or shall we say dependent, uh, Built upon tourists. Well, not this particular spot, yeah. no. But uh, a lot of it is, has has changed in, in some places. One of the things I want to do, I want to look back, as I said earlier, to some of the earlier anthologies. And I'm going to go back 10 years. 
to the first one called Vintage Voices. It has a odd cover on it, which interestingly enough is, a, but you have to look really close. It's supposedly a map, which has uh, Santa Rosa and Cloverdale, and so it's our section of the county. But you wouldn't know it. You've got to kind of examine it because it's hidden on this. Uh, oh, this was uh, picked because this is the color of uh, of grape juice that's been fermented. Do you see? Mm-hmm. So that's the process behind that. Yeah. Uh, one of the editors and uh, a close colleague of mine, Karen Batchelor, who's passed on, unfortunately, has written something about... Well, all kinds of things. Who'd like to read this for you? And this is a cold reading. Would you like to read it? I'll read it. All right. Well, it's it's from a woman's perspective, so I was trying to get a woman's voice. My hands are not dainty like my mother's, not slender, elegant, and soft, no tapered nails, polished, buffed, just so. No sweet smell of lanolin and talk. My hands are chipped, warped, scratched, each scar memory from some desperate battle, careless moment, joyful neglect, a map of the past, shadow of the future. Her hands do not reveal her art. Instead, conceal her voice of perfect pitch, hide sketches behind darkness in her closets, and in plain sight her company pot roast perfectly spiced. My hands carry books, babies, bags of groceries. My hands scrub floors, scour toilets, sweep cobwebs from dark attic corners. My hands fry chicken, scramble eggs, boil water. Her hands tell quiet lies about us. Wave away unpleasant past. Her hands described her as the queen or hearts, the royal we, the mistress of the kingdom. My hands are not dainty like my mother's hands that held and fed me, held me back, held me in, held me up, held my world. So poetry, fewer words, more carefully chosen than prose? I don't know. How do you writers think? I'm thinking about James Joyce's Ulysses, which is which I used to teach, but so long. But I think probably uh, in the case of some prose writers and what I'm hearing today, I think that the, the word choices are, I think for good prose writers, the word choices are very careful and very important. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. sustaining sustaining this. But, but we can hear the difference. I hear Christine and Suzanne, and just, you know, each sentence has its own resonance and rhythm. So from the poet among us, are we all poets? Do we all write poetry? I dabble in poetry as well as Christina. (laughs) I think um, it is more difficult for me it is to write poetry. And for me, I feel that I have to find the perfect words and distill what I'm trying to say into the fewest amount of words possible. And I tend to be verbose, I think. Um, So when I, I write a poem I like, I'm just... I'm just ecstatic. So I think it's more difficult. What do you think, Susan? Do you think? I think it's it's very hard for me. I actually wrote this poem first in 1997. I had taken a 
group of 34 college students to Greece and Crete in one of these. Cause 34, I, 34 students. students. Oh, and, uh, boy. Did, and I, I, I used to teach the Greek tragedies. Did you introduce but, them to Rocky? <laughs> no, we did. Oh, yes. they introduced us. Oh, okay. Um, but I always said I'd go back without 34 students, and I and I did. It would be a good idea but, if you did. Uh, oh, you did Yeah, go I did go. Oh, I did go back. I mean, they were fine, but it was I certainly earned my pay. But anyway, I my poems sometimes take almost 20 years. I, they're very hard for me to write. Uh, for me personally, they're very, they're very difficult, and I put them down. But I've been so lucky to move here to this area. I have Redwood Writers, the Marin Poetry Center, and I'm finding that it really helps me to be in company with other just great writers. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm inspired here. I love it. Michelle Wing, um, yes, who you mentioned Wing. earlier, yes, one of the things she wrote back to me, you know, you know, in response to this, that uh, she hadn't didn't have anything in the anthology, but she had helped edit the uh, and made the selection for the poet. So um, a great poet herself, and um, want to give her credit on the air. She's got, unfortunately going to be moving. She tells me in January she down to, to Mexico. the Mexico. That's right. All right. So we'll miss her, and we will also miss her famous dog. Yes, oh, Ripley. Yes, Ripley. 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 No, Ripley, of course. Oh, yes. Is, you know who I, I know Ripley. She's named after. No. Oh, my gosh. I don't. Alien. I'm See, a newbie. Hmm? Alien? In Aliens, that's right. The really oh. strong, powerful woman who oh, takes on the alien. I did. That was yeah. my guess. I, I did. That yeah. was my guess. Yeah, that's, 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 that's cool. A good guess. Wonderful. Very good guess. Yeah. So I've got one other brief poem, and certainly someone can read this. This is written by Anna Manwaring. And. Um, who ended up being an editor for one of the anthologies a few years later. It's only three lines, so you know what form it is. Who would like to read it? Oh, you can, you can read it. Okay. The top one. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is a lovely haiku. Spring by Anna Manwaring. Tiny, soft blessings fluttering down upon us like spent plum petals. Wow. That's very nice. Very nice. Very short. Very evocative. Right? Okay. So let me think. Uh, one of the things Vintage Voices, a toast to life. I, I was really fortunate in this because uh, the, uh, they broke it up into different sections of life, which they began with Chardonnay, the Chardonnay, I'm sorry, <laughs> Chardonnay, the, to the planting, rosé to the first bloom, Zinfandel to the harvest, and port to the bottling. And I got to be the opening uh, section in beginnings, which is actually the opening of my Miss Virginia Pettengill uh, book. Would you like to read us no, your I section? No, I don't. It's, <laughs> it's a little too long, but it, the, I can tell you what's the interesting yeah, thing. Yeah. When you go online to Amazon, you know, they pull a selection out of the book, and my oh, yes. story happened to be so a lot of people get to see it. That Congratulations. That's very great. That's I do great. want to read one other piece. This is, uh, or a short part of a piece. This is by Tom Cox, who also mm-hmm. is not with us. This is from the Vintage Voices Words Poured Out, which is, let's see when that was I from. Remember him. Yeah. The white-haired guy who always looked well-dressed. 2010, so five years ago. It's called Dream Churl by Thomas Cox, although most of us knew him as Tom Cox. It started when my shrink S told me to write down my dreams. See, we're back to a theme again. 
She pointed out I was telling lies in them about myself. I'm a fiction writer, IT specialist, computer super nerd, not in my dreams, no, no. Mostly my dreams go like this. I'm at a gathering, like a dog fight, high tea, or a swindler roast, and someone drops a name like Hillary Rodham Clinton or Dennis Rodman or the name of a business like the CIA or Xanadu. The name dropper's just dealing info, no glory questing, but me, I'm compelled, in the dream, to volunteer some lie about myself and the subject under discussion, whatever it might be. Like the other night, I'm dreaming a cocktail party. The name NASA comes up. Some chick admiring space travel and Tom Hanks says, weren't they brave? And I say, I worked for NASA during the first moonwalk. A considerable lie. And the chick who knows me says, what did you do there, astronaut? And I wake up. In another dream a few days later, the British actor fella is raving about Belize. Belize this, Belize that, beautiful Belize, I say. I've been there many times. Found it dull, dull, dull. I say I've been there many times, found it dull, but never in my dreams or in life have I been to Belize. I don't even know where the damned island is. Or is it an island? And this thespian says in waffle-speak, broad-A, British stage beat, Did you stay at? And the accent makes it sound like inarticulate arms. Oh, yeah, I say. Wasn't the food brutal? And he says, it's a youth hospital. You kind of make it your own. And I wake up. You see the pattern? And he goes on. So Tom had a wonderful way of writing, uh, he did this beautiful novel that he submitted to a uh, contest for the California Writers Club Conference in Silomar. And it was, I thought, gorgeous, but nobody understood it. You mentioned, you know, James Joyce, and, and he kind of wrote in a what I would call an unusual style. You kind of got to think about it when you read it. And Tom wrote in a... Uh, an eclectic clop, clop, clop style. We'd start off with one paragraph and then another paragraph, and they didn't seem to go together, so you'd have to go back and read the first one again, which made you stay with his pieces. He was an interesting guy. Each of these volumes has combinations of ingredients that are wonderful to share. Do you know, can you think of any anthologies that have been important to you other than Redwood Writers? Mm, I put you on the spot. Well, I mean, anthologies of women poets that have come, starting with Gilbart and Gubar in the 70s, their book about mad women in the attic, yeah. you know, unearthing women's literature. But to me, having some of these anthologies of women's literature that I would not have known about mm -hmm. when I went through undergrad in the late 60s, we were not really exposed to many women writers. So for me, I would have to say it's the anthology of women poets. Right. Who have been sort of rediscovered, if you will. Right. Anyone else? We are, of course, in the uh, area of the beat poets of the 50s. And, I, and that's where I became involved in poetry and anthologies again. You know, collections that were done that were, um, that were available in Sausalito and little dusty, you know, bookstores and stuff like that. And... Um, the first anthologies I remember growing up were anthologized science fiction stories, which was very big to me in sixth and seventh grade. I read many, many of those and discovered that uh, there was this writer called Isaac 
Asimov. You ever heard of him? He's he was listed. I, he may still be listed in the um, uh, the list of most prolific writer. He wrote constantly, and he he had an interesting thing. He would do a, a preface at the beginning of the of the piece that he was doing, which you know may have been about Mars or may have been about some future history or something. And he always say, "This is just as I wrote it off the typewriter." And I just sent it in and, you know, editors be damned. And then uh, Lawrence Gold, who was one of his editors, wrote a piece later on that said, like heck. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so there's uh, anthologies have fulfilled. Did you think of anything, Susanna? Then? I'm actually toying with reading an anthology these days, anthology of women travel writers. Ah. Oh, and um, it's, been, it's been a, a fun, uh, fun to get started in that. Mm-hmm. And the travel that they go to, are these short pieces then? These are short pieces. The one that I, I read was some gal wishing to get pregnant, and she goes to Ecuador, and she ends up with some shaman who sprinkles weird stuff on her as well as spits all over her. And did it work? She didn't end up having a baby, but she adopted a baby. Ah. So she thinks it worked. So the colonel <laughs> was there. Ah. And you, did you have uh, some anthologies? Obviously, both of these would tie into but with you with with women poets and also travel writers. And there anything you can think of that well, from past or present? Well... You said not including Redwood Writers anthologies. So. Oh, I did. Yes. So, I, I <laughs> well, w- is there one that particularly was important to you? Well, yes. I'm somewhat new to writing, you know, or owning it. I came out of the closet as a writer a few years ago, and so. So, um, did you literally write in the closet? No, but I have a friend <laughs> who recommended I I take my everything out of my walk-in closet and create a <laughs> writing space in there. I said, no, I'll get claustrophobic. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it was a thought. But um, so I had my the first anthology I ever submitted anything to was the 2013 mm-hmm. Redwood Writers at about the time that I joined the club. And um, I happened to be writing historical fiction set – in the slave times of the United States, and the theme was emancipation, so mm-hmm. it was perfect. And I just got this fire lit under me and finished a short story and um, submitted it, and it was it was used, and it was a, you know a really big thrill for me, and it kept me motivated to keep writing. Well, that's one of the advantages of having Redwood do these anthologies is that we fledgling and non fledglings who uh, you know want to have a, a, a way to try something new and different can do that. Because I write, you know, constantly with uh, my newspaper columns and such. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about feedback on it. One of the really nice things, and you were talking about the wonderful party you have, is that people come up to you at the meetings and said, "Oh, I read your piece. I, you know, I I can't believe it. I it reminded me of blah 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 yeah, blah." Right. Right. It's right absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. And the con- the instant feedback, or almost instant feedback, is yeah. so nice because so many times you'll find as a writer you send something out. And, you know, by the numbers, you know, who's read it where, because they give you a nice little chart on Amazon with a picture of the states, you know, with lots of them not colored in because you've never sold a thing in those. Uh, yes, and, I'm not quite um, familiar. <laughs> Sorry. I actually didn't know about those. Oh, right. Like, oh, well, well I didn't yeah, you, you get to become an, you get an author link, so you get okay. all this inside information. So um, anyway, you get feedback, which is great. 
and uh, sometimes great. On other times, you you know, uh, they come up to you and say, "I'm not so sure about that ending. Maybe if you changed it, right?" <laughs> Never happened to you? Never. No. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, is there? Let me ask you if there if there is a project we didn't hear much about you. So let's. Why don't each of you, Susanna? Why don't you begin with a short little description of what you're doing now before you take off tomorrow or whenever it is. Um. I was under the impression for a long time that I was good at novels, and um, uh, it turned out that that's not really the case at all. There wasn't all. an editor in the world who agreed, is that right? And particularly not yesterday when I got completely slaughtered. Um, but I seem to be good at short stories, and uh, it's a form that I that I love. And one of the things Redwood Writers has is they have open mics, right. and they have opportunities to read stories in front of people and um, all over the place and they have been nothing but but a wonderful place to improve my craft and very very supportive you become an expert on the five minute the uh, five short minute story short because story. you were doing readings where there was a bell was sounded or a hook came and took you off stage well it was a huge horn and <laughs> oh okay a horn and in a blackened bar where it's very dark at the time i got pulled off the stage it took me 45 minutes for my face to no longer be red oh dear yeah so not because you were bad just because you went too long you went too long right so uh I, I don't like that word. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, what about you? Well, we, we have to stretch ourselves as writers. So I'm working on a novel. It's called To the Balkans and Back. I worked in Montenegro on a Fulbright in 2012. But what I Oh, did... you say that so well. Oh, yeah. Doesn't she I say that? Yes, yes. Oh, well, when I was in Montenegro <laughs> no, with my yes. Fulbright. <laughs> well, that could have been a travel piece, too. But it turned out to be very difficult. Uh, the whole area is still inflected by the Balkan Wars. Mm-hmm. I, I gathered so many tragic stories, and it's a long story. But I had a latent cancer when I went there. But at the university, at the School of Philosophy, I no one in the faculty, although they'd invited me to come, ever spoke to me. And I had some incidents where I was greeted by groups of young men at the door giving salutes to Rocko Mladic, Serbsky hero. And I, my disease actually surfaced towards the end. I wow. had so much stress. But, wow. um, and I read part of it at an open mic, Redwood Writers, and people liked it. So it's encouraging me to continue. So yay, Redwood Writers. Good. We're kind, <laughs> we're kind of gone that theme here. So one more. Well, I'm working on a historical novel set and again, Slavery Times, and I'm looking at... Ah, you're expanding your Redwood Writers piece. I am. Mm. Um, so just looking at a collection of uh, characters, both white and black, enslaved and not, and, and how the before and after of the Civil War affects who they are. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to, obviously, we have to do this. I have to refer people, uh, writers or wannabe writers or thinking about wannabe writers, to the Redwood Writers website, which is really difficult to remember. It is redwoodwriters.org. <laughs> and you have to put in ORG or that will send you a very strange place. I can't remember exactly what it is. Uh, but we're going to do this. We have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media Care, CBFM, where we've been chanting with Christina Goulart, Susan E. Gunter, and Susanna Solomon three of the talented writers featured in Journeys on the Road and Off the Map. The special 10th anniversary writers anthology collected, edited, and published by Redwood Writers. We uncovered a surprising synchronicity in the three writings and believe readers will find their own connections as well in Redwood Writers' 10th anniversary anthology. 
Our studio engineer for today's show is Jesse Van Cushen. Our KRCB program manager is Sean Knight. Our invaluable assistant is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We hope you can join us for the next Word by Word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, October 11th, when our guest will be Elizabeth Egan with her comedic novel, A Window Opens. Until then, here are some words from Susan E. Gunter's poem, Mediterranean Triptych. I sit and write, sit and watch the horizon where the violet mountains come down to form right angles with the azure sea. My mind laps the shore in time to the waves. Nighttime is my time for just reminiscing Regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else There'll be no one unless that someone is you I intend to be independently blue I want your love, don't want to borrow Have it today to give back tomorrow Your love is my love There's no love for nobody Be lonely than happy with somebody else.